Dozens of students and members of the community protested outside a frat house at Penn State University on Monday while an investigation continued into the group's use of a secret Facebook page. College fraternities have been in the news a lot in recent years. Frat members allegedly shared photos of nude and partially clothed women without their consent, some of whom were unconscious through the page. Many of the stories have to do with drinking and allegations of harassment and sexual assault. At SDSU, two alleged sexual assaults have taken place at fraternity parties since the beginning of September. At Cal State San Marcos, an entire fraternity is under investigation by the school for multiple sexual assault reports. Fraternity culture made the news again in recent days as reporters dug into the history of Brett Kavanaugh. One picture appearing in the Yale Daily News during those years of DKE members, but not Kavanaugh, raising a flag made from female student undergarments. It indicates the sort of fraternal hijinks, some say misogynistic activities, carried out by members of DKE during Judge Kavanaugh's time in the fraternity. From APM Reports, this is Educate, a podcast in collaboration with The Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking about efforts to reform fraternity culture. And we'll also look at why the Federal Department of Education is talking about changing the Obama-era policy that governs how colleges investigate alleged sexual misconduct. I had kind of thought when I started reporting several years ago that fraternities might be on their way out, that with the ascendance of women on campuses, that they become less popular and some of this behavior become less acceptable. And then we have the rise of of Donald Trump, who was kind of sending the opposite message. That's John Heckinger. He's a senior editor at Bloomberg, and he wrote the book True Gentlemen, The Broken Pledge of America's Fraternities. John is the son of Fred Heckinger, a former education reporter and editor at The New York Times, and the namesake of our partner, The Heckinger Report. Our producer, Alex Baumhart, talked with John Heckinger. You call them out for being full of broken promises. What are some of the ways fraternities fall short of their creeds? They promise to be leaders on campus, both in terms of uh, scholarship and morality and integrity. And in many cases, uh, they fall short of of those promises by uh, participating in the heaviest drinking on campus and creating an environment where, uh, as one researcher told me, sexual assault is almost uh, inevitable. Um, reams of social science research shows that fraternity men are the heaviest drinkers on campus. Something like 90% binge drink, twice the level of other students. And as a result, their parties tend to be dangerous places. Women are one and a half times more likely uh, to be victims of sexual assault if they frequent fraternity parties. And sorority women, who are among the most frequent guests, run three times the risk of rape. So part of it is the environment, and part of it is is an attitude. Um, there are no end of, of situations where misogynistic language and casual talk about sexual assault or the uh, definition of consent um, being far from what one would expect um, come out in year after year. And how did fraternity culture get here? Well, this was a sort of split personality that started from the 19th century. Uh, Fraternities had some noble beginnings. Um, One of the earliest uh, precursors of fraternities was Phi Beta Kappa, the honor society. And the earliest fraternities were literary societies filled with men who wanted to change college to a place where modern literature was discussed and 
uh, where careers could be lost in useful subjects rather than uh, theology and Latin and Greek. But at the same time, from the very beginning, they were rebels and they drank heavily, even rioted. And college presidents at the beginning tried to stamp them out. So you can see that it's kind of in their DNA to have this kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation. I think that's that's actually the the fundamental question of my book, that it doesn't seem like drinking has to be at the center of fraternity life, that there are, there are many other qualities that draw men to fraternities. And yet, each time, each time there's a change, it doesn't seem to change. There doesn't seem to make that much difference. You write that one in six men enrolled full-time on a college campus at a four-year school is in a fraternity. Uh, so they're clearly still very popular. <laughs> How have fraternities been able to survive on college campuses given all of these strikes against them? I mean, they, they house 250,000 students and own $3 billion worth of real estate. Um, they're the biggest landlords um, on colleges after the universities themselves. Fraternities um, also um, serve a, a very useful purpose for many students. Um, as you said, I mean, they're more popular than ever. Um, last I looked, there were 400,000 members of fraternities, a 50% increase over the last decade. And um, I think that's largely because many other studies show that fraternity members themselves find a, um, have a greater sense of community and connection to other students um, than non-affiliated students. Um, they tend to access an incredible career network that can launch them into positions in business and in politics. Um, colleges love fraternities in many cases because uh, fraternity and sorority members are among the most loyal donors. Um, one school I looked at at Indiana University, I found that 20% of alumni had belonged to Greek organizations, but they made up 60% of donors. So um, the money's good for colleges. Um, the uh, colleges use fraternities to recruit students, particularly full-paying students that come from out of state at big public universities. Um, people want that kind of vibrant uh, party scene. So both for the, the socializing on campus, the social capital, and for their careers going forward, uh, fraternities uh, are, are popular for a reason. So you mentioned sexual assault as a pervasive issue at fraternities across the country, and it is among the most common insurance claims against fraternity houses after assault and battery. What are fraternities doing to try to stop sexual assault? And to that effect, what's an example of a college doing that well, or a fraternity doing that well, kind of owning the problem and trying to raise awareness among their members? I mean, fraternity national organizations, they've all um, tried to institute uh, sexual assault awareness. Um, and training for their members. Um, but the problem is that those uh, programs uh, for all students have not um, been found to be that effective. I, I called my book uh, True Gentleman um, because that is the, uh, the motto and creed of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, which is one of the most powerful and largest fraternities in the country. And they're a really good example of both the good and the bad of fraternities. Um, in the decade that I studied, 10 people died at Sigma Alpha Epsilon um, events or incidents related to the fraternity. And that was more than any other organization. 
And um, things got so bad that they were in danger of losing their insurance and essentially going out of business. So their national organization, their president, took a pretty bold step and decided to eliminate pledging completely. Pledging is the uh, initiation period, usually about six weeks, maybe two months, where the youngest members are kind of treated as second-class citizens and asked to do sort of menial tasks, are often humiliated, and in some of the worst cases, forced to drink until they pass out and in some cases die of alcohol poisoning. And this, uh, this pledging is supposed to kind of build camaraderie and it's really a treasured tradition. But SAE felt that all these years of saying that they had, a limit, they had um, prohibited hazing hadn't done enough. So since the time that, that SAE eliminated pledging, they haven't had another um, hazing-related death their insurance rates have gone down, and they've had many fewer um, injuries or claims. So it really is an example that um, cultural change can happen if the national fraternity takes it seriously. I should say also they shut down um, more than 30 chapters who uh, refused to obey with the edict. This is not your fight alone. This is on all of us, every one of us, to fight campus sexual assault. You are not alone, and we have your back, and we are going to organize campus by campus, city by city, state by state. This entire country is going to make sure that we understand uh, what this is about uh, and that we're going to put a stop to it. In 2011, the Obama administration decided to tackle sexual assault and harassment on campus. And the tool they chose to use was an existing federal law, Title IX. Well, Title IX uh, dates to 1972, and... It ensured broadly that women um, would have equal access to facilities and would not be subject to discrimination. And colleges uh, face, in the worst cases, uh, a complete uh, pulling of federal funding. So um, that's been kind of a, a, a big cudgel that could be held over colleges. Um, it started by sort of opening up uh, academic and um, social opportunities for women. Uh, before Title IX, women were vastly underrepresented in higher education. Now they're, uh, they're the majority. Um, they, women achieve it much at higher levels than men and are earning advanced degrees uh, more commonly than men. Um, and it's, you know, we're most familiar with it in terms of increasing athletic opportunities uh, for women. Women were essentially... Uh, um, not offered anything like the kind of uh, facilities or, or sports that men were, and now their uh, their participation is rising, rising very, very quickly. Um, more recently, um, court cases have held that uh, Title IX protects women from sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the most sort of consequential change came in the uh, Obama administration. And uh, what Obama's uh, Justice Department um, said is that um, colleges, which have really been loath to handle these kinds of cases, must develop a system to adjudicate uh, complaints. And in a letter, a guidance letter it's called, which doesn't have the force of law but comes close, says that um, in these cases, the standard of proof is, a, is not beyond a reasonable doubt like a criminal case, but a preponderance of evidence, that it's basically more likely than not to have happened. And this, um, um, along with um, sort of a growth of activism among women, this unleashed uh, sort of a torrent of 
individual claims and sort of claims against colleges that they were creating a hostile environment um, against women and really raising the awareness of just how um, prevalent sexual assault is. Um, but at the same time, there were serious concerns among – from really both the left and the right, um, including many uh, law school professors, that men were really not being treated uh, fairly in you know, facing some very serious charges that can lead to expulsion. And there were some sort of highly public cases that seemed seemed unfair to many people. Well, let me just say that one sexual assault on campus is one too many, but one person denied due process is one too many, and that's really what this is all about. So what Betsy DeVos has done, the, uh, President Trump's Secretary of Education, is to sort of roll that back to say that um, that there has to be a higher higher standard. There has to be a preponderance of evidence rather than a, a sort of a legal distinction, but not not beyond a reasonable doubt. But there has to be some very, very clear evidence before um, a man is disciplined for uh, an alleged sexual assault. There have been too many students wronged in, in a, a well-intentioned attempt to ensure that this issue is not swept under the rug and not hidden in back rooms of schools any longer. And we have no intention of doing that. We have every intention of continuing to make sure that students feel safe and that they all have a fair and equal um, forum in which to work through such issues as this. So does that kind of rule out then people coming back retroactively and saying, hey, this happened to me five years ago? I don't think it rules it out, but it becomes far more difficult um, I mean, one of the reasons the Obama administration took this action is that um, the police also had been very loath to take on these cases. Women often don't want to subject themselves to sort of the public crucible of a of a of a criminal investigation, and so they're more likely to come forward and, and if their names can be kept sort of out of the public spotlight. So these new requirements from the Department of Education for a greater burden of truth, I know stricter reporting standards are going to be a part of the new norm. And all of this seems to underscore a belief that a substantial number of accusers are making their cases up. And I'm wondering how realistic that is. What percentage of accusations of sexual misconduct from or against college students are actually found to be false? Well, most studies show that they're really a tiny fraction of accusations are you know, are, are false. But it's a really a different issue here. It's really a, a, a question of definition. And one of the things that activists and colleges have done is to sort of increase, or to expand the definition of sexual assault and to sort of um, include behavior that in the past would not have been considered rape. Um, and so some of the cases that have... Uh, that have sort of come to light and have troubled people involved um, encounters, you know, where both people are drinking, where it is extremely difficult to figure out what what happened, and uh, where it's extremely muddy. And I think those are the kinds of cases where there's some discomfort in uh, convicting someone of uh, sexual assault, or convicting or finding someone responsible for sexual assault um, when when it, the situation is so clouded by alcohol. And in a, obviously in a criminal case, it's something where a jury probably would not, would not convict. 
So this is coming down from the federal government. Do you think colleges themselves are going to kind of roll back the standards that they've had to be in line with over the last seven years? I think colleges are going to find it very difficult to dismantle the kind of apparatus that they put together. They're under a lot of pressure um, from parents and from activists to, uh, to police sexual assault. But, I mean, it's going to be a lot, a lot more difficult to hold men accountable um, under these standards. And, um, I mean, sometimes what you hear from fraternities is that, um, well, the authorities should, uh, should, you know, keep people to account. And what this is going to mean is that it's going to be up to these organizations to decide whether they want to have an environment where sexual assault is more likely than elsewhere on campus. And if so, um, it's, really, it's really on them because it's going to be much, much harder to, uh, to prosecute. Does any of this seem kind of tone deaf now, these changes, especially in light of the Me Too movement and um, so many of the conversations that are happening around, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's a Supreme Court nominee? And I, I wonder why now these changes are occurring. Well, it's so interesting. This is a situation where you have such powerful cross-currents. I mean, going back to my book on fraternities, I had kind of thought when I started reporting several years ago that fraternities might be on their way out, that with the ascendance of women on campuses, that they become less popular and some of this behavior become less acceptable. And then we had the rise of, of Donald Trump, who was kind of sending the opposite message. Um, and, you know, if you look at um, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings recently, um, if you look at the accuser, um, that would be an example of the, the importance of perhaps bringing up um, something that happened decades ago and confronting um, sort of a, a very painful history of, of, in this case, allegations of, uh, of sexual assault. But many of the Republicans who support uh, Brett Kavanaugh feel that um, the more important issue is due process, that there's no way to sort of fairly adjudicate something that happened um, three decades ago. So you can see that really this issue, this uh, issue of Title IX, is, is really uh, the same issue that's in the heart of, of the uh, confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh. And we've seen how Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's time as a member of um, the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity at Yale has been scrutinized in light of the accusations against him that he um, assaulted women in high school and college. And that fraternity affiliation seemed inseparable from the insinuation that he was the type of person who could commit assault. Are fraternities and their members, past and present, under greater scrutiny now than in the past? I mean, I think they are. I mean, what's so interesting about uh, Brett Kavanaugh is he um, was a student um, at Yale in the 1980s. And this was a time when, if you look actually at the Yale Daily News, um, the year he joined, there was an article that talked about um, do fraternities have a future at Yale? They were they were really losing currency, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. And then you had so so Brett Kavanaugh would have been joining a at that time kind of a, a subculture that was kind of out of step with the mainstream of of Yale, um, where um, drinking actually at that time the drinking age was much. Was was eighteen, and students could drink it uh, in public places and dorms. And so, his decision was really to join this culture. Now, I should also say that uh, Deke, the uh, 
the uh, fraternity that he joined is a is a was founded at Yale. Both presidents Bush were members, and um, so it 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 had a it obviously served a purpose in terms of people's uh, career paths and. His joining may have, you know, undoubtedly helped him in his in his career, particularly a career in uh, in conservative politics. Um, since the 1980s, both at uh, at Yale and, and everywhere else, uh, fraternities have have undergone a renaissance, and to some degree, it does uh, parallel the rise of uh, and of the conservative movement. You know, con- uh, fraternities are sort of nostalgic organizations that. Uh, Kind of venerate uh, ideals, uh, traditional ideals of masculinity, and those tend to be more uh, appealing to conservative students. And full disclosure, um, I went to Yale in the 1980s, and I was one year behind Brett Kavanaugh. Um, so I just think that's something that I should mention. I didn't, I didn't know him, but I did know the sort of environment, and I, I think that most of us saw. Um, the behavior, the the heavy drinking at uh, at Deke, and the uh, now infamous flagpole covered with uh, women's underwear, um, and at the time we found it uh, to be disturbing, and in retrospect, uh, even more so. Is there a place for fraternity on college campuses? There seem to be so many contradictions. What need what needs to change? So I think it's going to take enormous amount of public pressure, which we're seeing today, prosecutions of people who uh, commit sexual assaults and, uh, and, and haze freshmen to death, to put enough pressure on these organizations to say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're about something else. We are about leadership, that we are about um, creating true gentlemen and not uh, people who end up in, uh, in prison. Over the last year, there's been kind of a groundswell among college administrators and parents uh, against fraternities, particularly because there were four really horrible deaths, in particular the death at uh, Penn State where a student was really it was caught on, on videotape being forced to drink um, 18 drinks in an hour and a half. And then when he stumbled and fell and was mortally wounded, you, you could see members of his fraternity on surveillance tape refusing to to call for an ambulance and he died and then there was a prosecution it was very difficult to explain that away so because of that there's a movement to ban hard liquor at uh, fraternities and in fact the national fraternity organization the umbrella group has endorsed that and its members have agreed to to ban hard liquor of course the question is whether that can be enforced but that's certainly a start and uh a number of college presidents have said that their um, if their fraternity chapters don't uh, shape up, that they're considering bans. But at this point, I think they are so entrenched. Um, I think they're not going anywhere. John Heckinger, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I really appreciate it. John Heckinger was speaking with APM Reports producer Alex Baumhart. That's it for this episode. Let us know what you think about how colleges handle sexual misconduct cases. What do you think about the changes the Trump administration is making to how these cases are handled? Join the conversation. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. 
Alex Baumhart and Chris Julian produced the podcast. This episode and so much of the work we've done this year could not have happened without the help of our fellow Emerald O'Brien, and we wish her well. This episode of the podcast was mixed by Michael Osborne. We partner with the Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>